just a few years ago, probably 10 or so now, that our family discovered a stretch of beach that we absolutely fell in love with in the panhandle of Florida. And so for the last few years, that's kind of been our go-to for vacations, for semester breaks, for pastoral planning and writing for Julie and me and all these kind of things. We've made this trek down to the panhandle of Florida, the beloved Redneck Riviera, so many times that I can really just about put our car on autopilot and get there in my sleep. But as a guy, you know, a dude, I like to enter in the destination into my phone so that I know exactly how many miles I have left. I know exactly where we are in the journey, exactly where the next Starbucks is. Julie knows exactly where the next Chick-fil-A is, and everybody stays happy on this 11 to 12-hour trek that we take multiple times and have taken many, many times. And this year, by the time we got around to our family vacation, we were really running and gunning in a lot of different directions. Emily had been there, our daughter, our son Joseph had been over there, Julie and I had been hither and yon all over the place, and it was finally time for vacation, and Honestly, by the time we actually got ready to leave, I was a lot distracted. I had a lot of things in my mind. I was like, have I had that last meeting, made that last phone call? Did I turn off this and make sure of that? All these kind of things were in my mind as we finally loaded up and headed out on family vacation. We were seven minutes out of the driveway when I made a turn, and I looked down at my phone, and my phone was telling me to make a U-turn. I thought, well, that's weird. Maybe... Google doesn't know that I've just turned, because it had just happened, and sometimes it takes a while to catch up, or maybe Google knows about a car wreck up the road that I'm not aware of, but I'm just going to keep going, and I kept on going down the road, the family discussion and conversation was flowing, everything was cool, and about two miles later, I just happened to glance down, and my phone was still telling me to make a U-turn. Now, at this point, I got irritated. I know that Google knows everything, but this was starting to make me mad, and I was like, and as I looked down, angry with my phone, it hit me at a critical intersection along the way. Instead of turning right to go toward Houston and Interstate 10 to get to the Panhandle of Florida, I had instead turned left to go towards Dallas. Nobody goes to Dallas if they don't have to. <laughs> and I was so angry. Now, have you ever been at a crossroads in life? I mean, I mean, I'm not, I mean, we hit them all the time, of course, but I'm talking about the kind of crossroads where you know this is a crossroads. That's where I found myself, and I don't mean the U-turn that I had to execute. I mean the crossroads of deciding whether or not to tell the family that I had taken the wrong decision, wrong turn, or try to very, very subtly execute the U-turn and hope nobody noticed. I chose the latter. And so I very, very subtly began steering and veering kind of towards the U-turn, and everything was cool. Hey, uh, what song do y'all want to hear? Put some music on. Y'all choose. Y'all talk about it. Go ahead. And when I even lightly tapped the brakes, my bride, Julie, said, what's wrong? Did you forget something? Is something on at the house? Did the house burn down? What's wrong? I said, well, no, the house is fine. But on this trip that we've taken probably 20 times in the last 15 years, before I even got out of Austin city limits, I took a wrong turn, and I have to go back the other direction. This morning, you and I are beginning a series of messages that is all about 
destinations. It's all about decisions. It's all about crossroads. It's all about distractions. The top five is all about finding focus in the frenzy of the world that you and I live in. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in the last week or so have actually experienced or been in the vortex of frenzy? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay, now, how many of you have created that frenzy? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> frenzy is really kind of a part of the world in which we live. It's just kind of become the accepted new normal. I want you to think about your grandparents. Think about your grandparents. No matter how old you are, let's go back two generations. You know what? You can say whatever you want to about your grandparents, and I can say whatever I want to about mine. I never saw my grandparents frenzied. I never saw them freaked out. Maybe it was because they ate more fried foods than we do. I don't know. But they just didn't live in the same level of frenzy that you and I live in on a regular basis. Now, I have to tell you, this series was birthed in a really unexpected way a couple of years ago. Julie and I had a friend who lives in a different city, and seemingly out of nowhere, he took his own life. And, and we were really rocked by this news, as I'm sure you can imagine. Sometimes, you know, you can see warning signs along the way. There are events that trigger certain things. This was, to all apparent appearances, completely out of the blue. And so I began just kind of processing this. I was kind of like, man, how do you get there? How, how, do you, how does somebody get to the place where they have zero hope? What, what happened? And what trickled out in the days and weeks after his death was the fact that things were absolutely not as they had appeared. As a matter of fact, when, he, when we first found out that he had died by his own hand, everybody, friends and neighbors and family started going, well, I mean, the guy was on top of the world. This was a guy who, by all appearances and by his own confession, he was definitely a follower of Christ. This was a guy who was happily married for decades. This was a guy who had happy, healthy children. He was in seemingly good health. He seemed to be professionally very successful. What happened? And, and before the details of his financial undoing became apparent and became known, as I was processing through this, I, I kind of started really kind of getting at it and going, how do you keep from getting there? I, I'm not talking about necessarily suicide because the vast majority of people will never get to that point, thank God. But isn't it true that a lot of people, maybe even some of us, somewhere along the way, trade in really living for just existing and we we make these little trade-offs and compromises along the way and then all of a sudden out of nowhere it just hit me and I remember saying to myself as I was processing through this you know what really truly it's not rocket surgery I just sometimes I like to make myself laugh when I'm talking to myself I said it's not right tell your neighbor right now it's not rocket surgery it's actually really straightforward and I started thinking about my own life and I started asking myself this question, these questions. Are you, Mac, really and truly growing in your faith? Is, is your faith and your relationship with Christ primary and you're closer to Jesus today than you were last year? I don't mean that you necessarily know more, although hopefully you do, but certainly you know more of Jesus. You're more connected to him personally. 
And, and that, by the way, that question has nothing to do with what I do for a living. That just has to do with the fact that I go by the name of Christ follower. That, that I have personally placed my faith in him for the forgiveness of my sins and to begin living the life that is truly life. So is your faith really and truly growing? Second of all, I, I started thinking about marriage. W would Julie say that I'm a good husband? Now that's a very important question. That's an important, not would I say am I a good husband? Of course. I mean, she is blessed. But would Julie say I'm a good husband, that I'm engaged, that I'm attentive, that I'm loving, that I'm leading, that I'm sexy as all get out? Would she really and truly go that far? Number three, Mac, how are you as a parent? How are you doing as a dad? I mean, really and truly engaged in the work of parenting your kids. Emily and Joseph in our household? Are you, are you really and truly deliberately equipping and preparing and encouraging them? I thought, man, that, that's those three. I thought, well, how about work? Are, are you really and truly doing your best work? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're a squillionaire or that you're very successful, but it means that People that you do business with, people that I work with, they're glad when you show up. If you don't necessarily work in a group environment, but you're kind of a freelancer, are people glad when you call them about doing a deal or signing a contract? Are you handling your work that you were created for? Are you doing the work you were created for? And then I had, I had to add one more question to, to myself. Mac, how are you doing with your fitness? How, how are you doing with, with taking care of yourself physically? And as I said, this whole internal conversation happened just a couple of years ago. And as I was thinking about that, I, I had to be honest and, and admit, you know, probably, not, not definitely, but probably the window on the NBA has closed for me. But I, I can still take care of what I got. I, I can still do the best I can with what I got to work with. So how are you doing on that? Five things. Five things. Now, some of you I know right now, you're thinking, whoo, for me it's just the top three. I'm not married. I'm not a parent. If you'll just tell me which weekends you're going to cover those, I'll sleep in, but I'll really dedicate myself to the top three. Woe up. Here's the thing. No matter where you are in this life, your perspective on marriage and the priority that you place on it absolutely affects every part of your life. Certainly it affects who you date, how you date, what you do. I mean, I'm just saying. And you may be thinking, well, Mac, I'm not really a parent, so I, I can't even grade myself out on that one. But you're either, you, most of us are parents or all of us have parents. And so how we view the way that they parented us, how we respond to that God-given, divinely sanctioned role of parent, man, that pinballs off of every single part of our lives. I promise you, tomorrow at work or tomorrow in your home or in a conversation, something about your family of origin will rear its beautiful or ugly head somewhere. So parenting is a big deal. How do you respond to that? How many of you do not have children. You're not a parent. 
Okay, everybody with a lot of free time, I want to talk to y'all for just a second. I'm teasing. Believe me when I tell you, your perspective, your view on parenting really and truly matters because it determines how you respond in so many different arenas. So the top five is for all of us. And as I started thinking about that, I thought, man, five things. I can remember five. I mean, God gave us the Ten Commandments. That's just half that number. Boy, when you start looking at it, really growing in your faith, really valuing, and may if you are married, growing in your marriage, but at the very least, valuing the institution. Parenting. Parenting. And and being a blessing, letting my faith impact my work, and my work impact my faith. That's and then actually taking care of myself physically. I don't know if you're like me, but there was a part of me as I was having this internal conversation a couple of years ago, I just kind of wanted to go, I take a knee just a second, man, just, just thinking about all that wore me slap out. But I want to encourage you as we begin this series, don't look at the top five as a list of things to do. Look at the top five as a way to unleash what God desires in and through your life. Another way of looking at the top five is this. The top five fulfills the promises of God. If you look at everything that God has offered and promised to those who will follow him, to those who live a God-first life, the top five actually fulfills and helps to fulfill all of those promises. And at the same time, it propels the purposes of God in this world. If you take care of the top five, I take care of the top five, if we value the top five, then all of a sudden we see the world bettered. We see communities flourish and thrive. We see homes and families thrive and flourish. Communities are better. People get up and go to work all of a sudden for a reason beyond just making a buck. Now, you got to have money. you got to eat. I get that. But if you get up and go to work every day just to make money, you are missing the mark of what God wants to accomplish in and through your work. And here's the beautiful thing about the top five. It doesn't matter where you are spiritually. You can be a lifelong follower of Christ or a brand new tire kicker just first starting to think about following Jesus. And the top five works for everybody. Now, some people say, whoa, 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 I thought number one was faith. So if you're, let's say that you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're an agnostic or an undecided or maybe even a, a full-blown atheist. Well, check this out. Your life revolves around something or someone. So however you answer that question, however you solve that problem, that determines what you really and truly believe in. Here's the thing. I understand, and I've, I've studied, and I, I get the philosophical underpinnings of atheism. I, I know the arguments, and I know where they're coming from, and I get it. But the fact of the matter is, while there are philosophical atheists in this world, there is no such thing as a practical atheist. There's no such thing as a practical atheist. Everybody worships something. Everybody revolves their lives around something or around someone. And if you read 
the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is actually a guidebook on dealing with distractions. Dealing with distractions is really kind of a part of the human element. I've got it, you've got it, all God's children got distractions. As a matter of fact, let's go to the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As long as they were focused on everything that God had given, everything he had called them to, provided for, everything was cool. They were cool relationally. They were cool with God spiritually. But it was the second that they allowed themselves to be distracted by the one thing God said that you keep their eyes off of. And in that moment, all the trouble began. King David, king of Israel, called by God, anointed by God to lead and to serve Israel. An incredible, incredible man. The Bible says a man after God's own heart. And yet King David, one year as the king, decided, you know what, I'm not going to take care of my kingly responsibilities. This year, in the spring, I'm staying home. I'm going to let the army of Israel go out and do their thing. I'm staying back home. And it was when he stayed home that he was distracted by a bathing beauty on a rooftop below named Bathsheba. And he engaged in an adulterous affair that a lot of people would look at and say, well, you know, that's really a victimless crime. But David's sin with Bathsheba gave birth to the sin of murder as he made sure that her husband was placed into the teeth of the front lines of battle so he would be killed in order to cover up his affair because Bathsheba got pregnant. And so these distractions are not new. And these distractions, I believe, is why God began the Ten Commandments in the way that he did. Now, the Ten Commandments are a really, really interesting piece of the Bible. We're probably familiar, at least with the term, and, and most of us could quote maybe three or four of them. But the Ten Commandments really come down to God giving to Moses for the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 20 the guidelines for living in a relationship with God. The very reason we were created. We're created for a relationship with God. We're created with this God-sized hole inside of us that nothing else will fill. God knows that, and that's why he said what he did at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. If you've got a Bible, look at Exodus chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 2, God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me that's the first one number one in the ten commandments now there are a couple of things going on in that before we get to the commandment that number one commandment first of all god says to moses and israel and by extension to you and me i am the lord your god that, that means that god is personal god is relational he's not this removed watchmaker who created the world, wound it all up, and then set it loose to work itself out. He is engaged. He is personal and relational. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of your slavery. Now, most of us have not been to Egypt anytime recently, but we all understand slavery. We all understand what it feels like to be drawn toward certain behavior, certain choices, certain actions, certain words certain selfishnesses that take us away from the life God created us for. Everybody gets that. God says, that's what I did for Israel. 
That's what he continues to do for people. So he is personal and relational, and he is rescuing on a regular basis, always. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. He says, this is how you live life in a relationship with a perfect and holy, morally flawless God. You shall have, number one, have no other gods before me. No other gods. Now, obviously God's getting at the subject of idolatry. Idolatry. And you and I, with the benefit of about 34, 3,500 years since God spoke these words to Moses' face, we kind of look at Israel and other ancient communities and people, and we kind of we look at them and go, isn't that quaint? That's really kind of cute how they had their little idols and, you know, they would make little stuff. Or some of them put a totem pole in their backyard and they would even bow down and, you know, the, the God of the sky would make rainfall. Woo! And we look at that and we go, man, they were, they were so naive back then. But we are so much more advanced when in reality, idols and totems are actually a lot more familiar to us than we'd like to admit. Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And really a, a brilliant, brilliant mind and a, and a great, great person. But he's written a fascinating, brilliant book entitled Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. And, and this is what Keller says about counterfeit gods and people. He says, the human heart is an idol factory. Idols are spiritual addictions, a good thing turned into a supreme thing. But counterfeit gods always disappoint and often destructively so. Every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. All of us experience that. We all know what it's like to to place our hopes in something, or maybe, maybe to place our hopes in someone who is destined to let us down, maybe even harm us, hurt us, or wound us. But we all understand that. Now, how do you, how do you really truly, if, if we're going to be real about this and making the top five the top five, not just theoretically and because we're at church and we kind of nod polite, oh, yes, amen, pastor, yes, Go get them. You just preach that word. But I mean really, practically, the top five is really the top five. When nobody else is around. How do you, how do you identify a counterfeit God in your life? Well, see, see if this works for you. Think about the thing or things that, that in your heart of hearts and in your mind really truly create anxiety what are the things that, that you kind of get kind of amped up about maybe nobody else knows them but but you you worry about or are you obsess about well whatever you worry about and obsess about the opposite of that is usually a counterfeit god the opposite of that is usually a counterfeit god if you obsess about and worry about financial security and making sure that you are paying the bills or maybe even that you obsess and worry about 
competing with other people and keeping up with the Joneses. You know, living the life, as they call it. If that's you, then you can know that money is competing with God for his rightful place in your life. What about if you obsess about and are anxious about and, and, and do everything in your life so that your kids are happy and healthy and they're involved in everything and everybody likes them and approves of them? Well, I, listen, I get it. I've got two of my own. And, and, and I understand that drive, but if I'm anxious about that and I'm worried about it and I'm, and I'm overscheduled and I'm, and I'm engaging them and signing them up for things that take them away from their own top five, and that maybe are a distraction from what God wants for their lives? If I'm more concerned about how they do in this competition or that travel squad than I am how they're really and truly growing in Christ and they're connecting into the life of the church, then, then I, I can know that my kids' happiness and health, as important as that is, it, 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 it can become a god. It, it can become an idol. What about if you're, if you're anxious deep down in your heart of hearts about getting married? If, you, if you're like, and the clock is a ticking. I've been out of high school now for a month and a half, and I don't have a prospective mate in line. Or maybe you're worried about having kids, and and you're anxious about it, and you're worried about it, and it's all you think about, it, and it's all you do anything about, it, and it's all you talk about. None of those things, in and of themselves, is bad. Not one. Unless they are serving as a counterfeit God. That's why the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing. That means that anxiety in our minds and in our hearts is a choice. Now, I recognize that a lot of times those choices get made so repetitively and so cyclically and chronically that there really are actual physiological, physical manifestations that have to be dealt with and need some help, and I get that. But anxious and worried and frenzied is a choice. We choose how we respond to all of those things. And ultimately, that's why God said, don't have any other gods before me. It's not because God's selfish. Remember what we said. The top five fulfill the promises of God and simultaneously propel the purposes of God. He's given us the top five. He's given us the Ten Commandments as an act of love as something that works in our lives best. This is who he is, and it's what he does. And so over the next few weeks, I want to invite you, and I wanna, I wanna, I'm pleading with you to make this a priority. Make, make time for this. I know summer's wrapping up. I, I know that, but I also know this. I've talked to too many people people whose lives and families ended up in the ditch because of avoidable choices. The top five is a gift from God. 
The top five is a gift from God. And so I'm pleading with you. As you think about the top five, faith, marriage, parenting, work, fitness, top five. Which one of those doesn't matter? Which one of those can you neglect or ignore or maybe even mock and belittle and not damage one of the others? At the same time, all five of those are biblically endorsed and mandated for gospel living. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what your life looks like. This is, this is, these, are, these are priorities. The top five. I want to ask you for a moment, if you would, bow your head. And as you bow your heads, I want to take you back just a second to that road trip that I mentioned at the very beginning this morning. That road trip at the very, very beginning of the message where I took a wrong turn. Where I was heading away from the destination that we had all kind of decided was the goal. <laughs> you know, once you finally get to Interstate 10 and, and start really heading west towards Florida from Austin, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exits. And if you really travel efficiently, you, you have to stop at least once pull off and get some gas and while you're there maybe you know get some coffee or some gas station fried chicken if you're down in Mississippi but you can also exit a lot along the way and if you want to instead of getting back on the road and heading for your destination you can you can take an exit and then start chasing some unknown roads you start going back in to some places that you've never been before, explore, check things out. But that means that you won't arrive where you set out for. See, living a God-first life, putting first things First, means by definition, you diffuse the distractions and you stay on point. It means that you will have no other gods before you, first and foremost. It means that in your heart of hearts, choose in everything that you do to say Christ is enough. Christ is my
bow your heads for me, please? Just a moment. And I want to ask you in this moment, if you will, just do everything you can to protect this moment. If you're here today and you have never responded to the extravagant grace of God personally and definitively, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that. Right now, just right where you're sitting, to begin a relationship with Jesus that changes everything. It's the beginning of a God-first life. It begins with a willing heart that you choose to surrender fully to Christ. The only one who loves you perfectly, the only one who can satisfy every craving of your life. If that's you this morning, then I want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. Silently, just something like this in your own words, just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, you're enough for me. God and right now I give you my life I will follow you from now on once and for all Jesus I confess my sin to you and I claim your forgiveness with everything that I've got Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you would, just for another second, remain with your heads bowed. As for those of you who just prayed that prayer, and you meant it for the first time in your life, it's kind of a big deal. And it, it's a moment in your life that I think you need to stamp. You need to make sure that, that you mark this moment in your mind and in your heart and say, that's real. August the 2nd, 2015. At the end of a service at Lake Hills Church, I began living in a relationship with God. I began a God-first life. And so if that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to ask you if you'd mark this moment just by raising your hand for a moment. Just raise it and hold it up in the air. Because I want to make sure that you all understand this matters. It matters so much that the Bible says all of heaven celebrates. And so as a church, we want to be a safe place for you to grow in this new faith. We want to help you grow. 
We want to learn from you. We need your help. Because together we're better. And so in a few minutes when our service ends, if that was your prayer and your hands up at this point, I want to ask you, if you will, just take that Connect card that's in the program, fill it out, and just briefly, after the service, make a personal connection, maybe with one of our ushers or at the blue tent out here underneath the big front porch. You can hand that to somebody just briefly and just let them know. We want to be a church home for you. And so we celebrate, we honor this moment in your life. And the first way that we do that, as you put your hands down, as we put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.